Welcome to episode 42 of the 643 Triple G Podcast. Today, we'll reveal and break down our 2023 predictions. But first, a brief recap of the previous week in baseball. We had a few extensions being passed out to some of these players um, here, and some of them actually were pretty big paydays for uh, some players I really didn't expect to get extension, at least at this time of year. Uh, I'll start off with two of them here. Um, the, big, ex- the biggest extension here was for Andres Jimenez. Uh, the Guardians extended him for seven years, and it's worth $106.5 million over this seven years there. Um, kind of had a breakout year last year for the Guardians, established himself as their second baseman of the future. Uh, I think this is a pretty good contract for him, and he definitely earns it there. Um, and then we go over to the NL West uh, Jake Cronenworth, and that's his own extension worth uh, for worth $80 million over seven years. Uh, so the Padres are really locking down their core for a very long time. Um, at least with my initial thoughts there, it's the same thing with the Padres, is that they're extending a lot of guys. I think they're nearing the end of their primes and into into like ages that are not, not at the right side of 40. So, I mean, we'll have to see how this one goes here. It's relatively unoffensive because you're looking at just over, like, you know, a little over $10 million a year uh, for Cardinal Wars, so it's not like you're breaking the bank. Uh, but it's something to keep an eye on with the Padres as they hand out these extensions to guys like Machado, uh, Joe Musgrove, uh, Bogart's named a huge deal, Hugh Darvish uh, for a few more years. But we'll have to see what's going on there. Uh, Jacob, what are the other two extensions? I'll let Joey talk about one of them. The uh, the Guardians also made another deal extending reliever Trevor Steffen for a four years and $10 million with two club options. Guardians had probably a top three bullpen last year, so it really solidifies that locks down one of your key guys. They extended Class A last spring. So this is, this is just a huge move for the Guardians. And it goes well with them the last 10 years when they extended Kipnis and Michael Brantley. Carlos Carrasco, they've really been pretty kind to a lot of their homegrown pieces. Jimenez is not homegrown, but what it does is it keeps a lot of this core together. And the last extension was Nico Horner, who the Cubs extended for three years and $35 million. If I recall correctly, that means they bought out one year of arbitration and this will put Nico as a free agent in his age 29 season or after his age 29 season, which sets him up very well if you were to go and seek a bigger contract outside of Chicago. Um, as a Cubs fan, I would obviously love to see him in Chicago for the long term, knowing that the Cubs signed Dansby Swanson for six or seven years. Nico has a big reason to stay now, and I think in the first couple of games of the season here, he's really enjoyed playing up the middle with Dan's be on the other side of second base. So good move on the Cubs. Um, It's definitely a friendly deal for Nico. It doesn't lock him into a contract past his, what would be considered his prime. And it it allows him to show out for the next few seasons and not have to worry about any contract negotiations with arbitration so that he can just play baseball and he can focus on whatever comes next after that three-year extension. Big thing for Nico was, I think you meant to say he bought out one year of free agency because he was supposed to be a free agent in the 2025-26 offseason, which also features Bo Bichette, Tommy Edmond, Nicky Lopez, Jorge Mateo, potentially Trevor Story. But now what he does by getting a, a $12 million salary in the 2026 season, now joins a free agent class where it's 
J.P. Crawford and just Chris Taylor. Those are the only shortstops. So he now went from maybe middle of the pack to he can be the top shortstop on that that winner's market. Yeah, very great timing for, for Horner there, for getting that extension there. Um, we'll move on here. Uh, probably one of the biggest storylines this, this opening day weekend was uh, Anthony Rendon uh, getting a five-game suspension. Obviously, this will be probably appealed. Uh, I think he actually did appeal it, so that five games could be lowered. Uh, if it doesn't, if they strike down the appeal, then he'll have to serve those five games. Uh, but this comes out with a fan interaction when he was, when the Angels were visiting the uh, Oakland Athletics uh, for their opening series. Yeah, he actually did appeal that. Uh, we're recording on Monday, April 3rd, and as of about an hour before our recording, um, it was shared that he would be appealing that suspension, which happened yesterday. Yeah, how, do you, how do you guys feel about it? Because I, I can kind of see both sides. No, he should not have touched the fan. At the same time, I think fans need to be limited to what they can say, and we need to stop treating athletes like the millionaires they actually are. We need to see them as actual people, and you're not allowed to just say whatever you want to these people. Yeah, it is quite aggravating that fans get away with so much and they're not held accountable. I think it has become more prevalent for fans to be kicked out for saying things they shouldn't or doing things they shouldn't while at an event, but it definitely doesn't happen as much as it should. There are so many things that are said that security just sits back and does nothing and other fans think it's amusing and they're just berating these players, absolutely berating the guys on the field who are playing the game that they are being paid thousands or millions of dollars to do. And this is their life's work and this is what they're doing. And they can't do so without getting just screamed at and getting sworn at and any of the worst things you can think of. It's one thing to get hate mail, whether it be over social media or in the actual mail or things sent to the clubhouse, whatever that might be. But to have it to your face when you're walking off the field after a game is just unreal and it should not be allowed to happen and this fan had been doing it to other players too and rendon happened to be the one that stepped in before jack here a lot of the times it's racial slurs as well like i know rendon was only called the b word but some of these guys it's racial slurs some of these guys they get hate mail but it's also personal attacks from their family threatening them like it's it's a pretty big deal it's a big problem and and it's one of those things where I think people don't understand that when they're in person, it's not like they're not watching the game behind a screen anymore. It's actual real life. And I think I don't ever condone violence or, you know, players touching people, but I do think that the players should be able to at least defend themselves in some way. Uh, but I think that's just something that maybe the league kind of has to kind of figure out what's the most appropriate line of action. I uh, know in NBA, I think it's a little bit easier, and I've seen this happen in games too, where uh, a player will actually point out a fan, and you know the ref will find someone a security guard to literally eject the person. Uh, so I think it's a bit harder in baseball stadiums to do that, just by how big the stadiums and how sprawled out they can be. Uh, but it's something that maybe the league kind of has to enforce a little bit better to at least have that integrity in place at the stadiums and make it a little more of a inclusive place for not only the players, but even some fans that don't want to be hearing that stuff 
there's a lot of kids out there that come to these games and they shouldn't be hearing these kind of things and shouldn't be um subject to to listening to how that, that goes because it normalizes the behavior and i think that's something that we shouldn't really be allowing here so i do have a quick update uh looks like jeff fletcher who's an angels beat writer was the first to report that Rendon did appeal and got one game taken off of the suspension. So he'll be serving a four-game suspension starting tonight, and the A's will play with a 25-man roster for the next couple of games. Not bad. I mean, it was only five games at the same... And Rendon's making, what, $35 million this year? But it... Just sucks for a guy like that. Again, he probably wasn't. He definitely wasn't in the right to just grab a dude. How did the? How do you guys think the rest of opening weekend went? Because for me personally, this is it's awakened something that I have probably haven't felt in quite a few years. Like I was really, really, really excited that baseball was back, and it was electric. I mean, it just. I think it was one of the better opening weekends out there, and I don't. I don't know if it's just because. Uh, you know, recently biased with the World Baseball Classic just being a all-time great tournament, uh, and then carrying over that excitement here, and then ha- you know having such great moments, ha- you know, happen there. You know, such as Aaron Judge his first swing going going out of the park, uh, pitching duels that were insane. Rangers continuing continuing their dominance over the Phillies. Like it, it's just a great weekend. I think a lot of it was due to having the World Baseball Classic a few weeks ago, but honestly, I was excited for baseball no matter what, um, just to see how the rule changes would play out. We got a little taste of it in spring training, but also there were a lot of guys that are playing for new teams, teams that they've never played for before, and to see how the rule changes and some new roster adjustments would play out, uh, I was looking forward to it a lot. The offense wasn't as explosive as it has been in previous years. There weren't a lot of hard-hit balls that went over the fence. Um, I think the majority of the increase in batting average on average uh, over the first series or the first weekend uh, was mostly due to singles, which could probably attribute that to the shift. Um, There were more stolen base attempts, um, and we kind of expected that because of the, the larger bases. Um, not as many teams were trying to steal bases, so the success rate will probably drop. Um, it won't be as representative of the entire season as the success rate was over the weekend, but it was pretty electric for the first handful of games of the season and seeing guys on new teams and having great starts in terms of starting pitching and guys like Dansby Swanson for the Cubs just absolutely raking at the plate and getting on base three out of four at bats. Um, it's, it was a lot of fun to watch and to keep track of all the games going on. Last thing was something we mentioned, I believe it was back in November, December, was the minor league CBA being attached to the major leagues. A lot of that was finalized this past weekend. And the biggest thing is salaries. We want, want to look at a lot of these leagues, they at least doubled salaries. So for AAA last year, it was $17,500. For your salary now it's all the way up to 35.8k the biggest jump was the complex league they made forty eight hundred dollars last year so the 2022 season this year it's 19.8 thousand it's it's massive a lot of these guys are going to be getting um, 
We'll be paid year-round except for a six-week gap in the winter. They'll be making money through spring training. I believe they also have access to insurance and a pension. So this is just one of a big step towards uh, just getting a lot of these guys actual money because they are workers. Yeah, I've, I've heard about, you know, way too, way too many too many stories, people in the minor leagues, the way they had to really hustle and bustle to really be able just to eat on a consistent basis, especially in the lower parts of the minor league, uh, minor league system here. So, I mean, I was concerned um, when they cut down on the minor league system by, like, over 50 teams, really consolidated that system that, that was, like, tied to the major league franchises. I was worried that you know something like this wasn't going to happen, where they cut it for budget reasons, and they were like, "Oh, we can do this, so we can pay teams, you know, teams and players more." Uh, but didn't really see any action for like at least a couple of years. But seeing them fall through with this uh, gives me at least a little faith, and you know, at least in the uh, in Manfred's office that they're keeping on the promises. But you know, I'd like to see, you know, when when you make promises, you know, maybe see the action come a little bit quicker, but it's definitely for the better for the system, and I think it's going to help a lot of players, um, especially younger ones uh, in, in rookie ball in the very low stages of the minor league system. Guys who don't get massive signing bonuses. I think it's also pretty fantastic that all 30 owners agreed to vote in favor of the deal, and despite it not being a unanimous vote on the player side, that all owners in the league voted to ratify this deal and to put it into motion and to actually like put these things out there for the players to take advantage of. And that's something that I feel like we haven't seen. There's been so many conversations and arguments over little nitpicky things with the CBA agreement the last few times, and the, not even the owners agree on things, but for the, all 30 of them to agree on this CBA for the minor leaguers is really amazing. All right, I'd like to move on to our main topic today, which is our predictions for the 2023 season. Um, something that us three here at the podcast do with our friends is we, we do predictions for about every single sports league you can imagine. Um, we do our March Madness uh, predictions. We do predictions for NFL, NBA, NHL. Uh, so obviously we did one for MLB, uh, considering that a lot of us uh, are huge baseball guys. You know, most of us play fantasy baseball. Uh, so... We have a spreadsheet that we had, uh, all of us get on here for. We do opening day predictions where we pick the winning winner of each matchup in the, on the first day. Uh, total number of home runs and uh, runs runs for all the matchups as a tiebreaker. Um, but more importantly for the season, all of us predict what the postseason is going to be in terms of like the bracket. Uh, we do over-under predictions based on uh, some, of the, some of the things that Vegas sets. And then we also picked your awards at the end of the season. Uh, so all three of us uh, obviously have, has uh, filled these things out. So we're just going to go through uh, what we have going on here. So we'll start off with the postseason picture. Um, this probably is going to mirror what we kind of talked about in our preview episodes, but this is kind of everything coming together. And we each actually pick a pick a champion in a championship matchup. Uh, so, uh, Joey, you want to get started with your postseason prediction? Yep, I will go ahead and start with the American League, where I have Houston, New York, and Tampa Bay getting the three wildcard spots in that order. So the first round matchups for the wildcard round will be Houston, 
uh, or I should say New York at Houston. So the Yankees at the Astros and then the Rays at Toronto, who I have as the three seed. I have Cleveland and Seattle getting the two buys. Uh, in the first round, I have the Astros beating the Yankees and moving on to face Cleveland. And I have Toronto beating Tampa Bay to face the Mariners. From there, I have Houston beating Cleveland and Seattle beating Toronto. I have Houston advancing to the World Series. And I'll jump over to the National League side, where I have San Diego, the Mets, and the Braves as the three wildcard spots in that order again. Uh, the Mets at Padres for Series 1 of the wildcard, and the Braves at the Dodgers for Series 2. I have the Dodgers as a number three seed with the Philadelphia Phillies and the St. Louis Cardinals getting the two buys. I then have the Mets beating the Padres to face Philly and the Braves beating the Dodgers to face St. Louis. From there, I have Philly beating New York to advance and play Atlanta, who will beat out the St. Louis Cardinals. And then I have Philly moving on to the World Series, where I have a World Series rematch of the Astros and Phillies. But this time around, I have the Phillies coming out on top and being the World Series champions at the end of October. So, Joey, what was your rationale for having the Phillies, I guess just a rematch in general, but the Phillies winning it all this year? Well, considering no one expected them to do anything last year and they got all the way to the World Series and um, made it a pretty solid matchup in the World Series, um, I figured that they would be able to hang in there for most of the season against Atlanta and the Mets within that division. And um, I obviously have them winning the division this year. So honestly, I think they're just a team that kind of gets pushed aside in terms of cont uh, conversations about contenders. And that's kind of what happened this past season. So. I'd really like to see them just get back to the World Series and to finish the job that they couldn't finish last year. Jack, do you want to go next or should I? Yeah, I'll go next. Um, all right. So I have with the best record in the American League is the Houston Astros. Um, second best record would be the New York Yankees, uh, and then the Cleveland Guardians take the AL Central. Uh, the wild card spots I have the Toronto Blue Jays with the top seed for the wild card, followed by the Mariners and then the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, Mariners will beat the Blue Jays to face the Astros, Guardians will take out the Orioles, and they will be facing the Yankees. Uh, Astros beat the Mariners as they did last year. Yankees beat the Guardians as they did in most years. And then the Yankees take out the Astros and the ALCS. In the National League, I have the, with the best record, the San Diego Padres, uh, followed by the New York Mets winning the NL East. And then winning the Central would be the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, then I have the LA Dodgers with the top wildcard seed, followed by the Braves and then the Philadelphia Phillies. I have the Cardinals going over the Phillies with the Dodgers going over the Braves. The Dodgers beat the Padres in the NLDS, and the Cardinals take out the Mets. 
Cardinals beat the Dodgers, and they go face the Yankees, where I have the Yankees beating St. Louis. Interesting. Was there any bias in that, or you truly think the Yankees are like the team to beat this year? I think Yankees are the team to beat this year. I mean, there's always going to be a bias with me because I do like myself the Yankees. Uh, but I think they have the rotation if Rodon and Severino can get healthy. I like how the lineup looks. I think that they will address left field at the deadline with a pretty decent uh, name uh, to really shore up the lineup, and I think they really make a run this year. You're not concerned about the depth at all in the lineup? Or the rotation? No, not... not I don't... I want to... I think I'd be I'd be more worried about the rotation more than the depth, but I think that the Yankees would be willing to uh, shop people for to shore up like left field and then a starting pitcher and maybe the bullpen if it becomes a concern. Okay, Jacob, what do you have for your prediction? So one through six, I had the Blue Jays at the top seed. They win the East. The Astros are second. They're winning the West, so they both get buys. Then I have Cleveland winning the Central. They're the third seed. My three wild cards go Yankees, Mariners, then the Orioles. Got the Yankees, Mariners matchup, Mariners winning, and then Guardians, Orioles. I have the Orioles beating the Guardians. There is some bias there. I, but I do think this is a very young team. Maybe not close to the 2015 Cubs, but I think they will overachieve just a little bit the postseason. You got Mariners, Blue Jays rematch. Blue Jays move on. Orioles, Astros. That was another bias for me because I wanted to see a lot of these Orioles front office and a lot of their ideas came from Houston. But the Houston Astros are just too dominant. They're going to move past. So we got Blue Jays, Astros. Astros advance to the World Series again. Moving on to the NL, the Braves are the top seed and the Dodgers are the second seed. We got the Cardinals winning the Central. Three wild cards Mets, Padres, D backs. So I do not have the Phillies advancing to October. That's Padres. I had the Padres beating the Mets. Cardinals, D-backs, Cardinals. It's because the D-backs are an inexperienced team when it comes to October. I think the Cardinals, two MVP caliber players, a lot of young rookies. They're going to be a pretty fun team to watch. Padres, Braves. Padres move on. At some point when you spend this much money on a team, it's got to click sooner or later. Cardinals, Dodgers. Dodgers move on. Padres, Dodgers. Two juggernauts in the West to put the Padres advance to the World Series, and the Astros will win again. So that would be three times since 2017. I think they'll kind of cement themselves as a true dynasty. You think Dusty Baker calls it a career if they win again? Honestly, I don't know. It sounds like he's taking it year by year, but for him, it's there's not really a better way to walk off into the sunset. To recap, Joey, you've got Phillies over Astros. Phillies over Astros is correct. Hey, Jack, Yankees over Cardinals, was it? Yep, that's correct. And then Astros over Padres. Now we'll move on to award winners and stat leaders. Nothing too crazy for awards. It's just MVP, Cy Young, Rookie of the Year, Manager of the Year, and we do comeback player. Stats, it's just the home run, strikeout leaders for each league. And then we do the National League and American League team goal gloves. So, oh, you want to kick us off with your two MVP guys? For the National League MVP, I am going with Juan Soto. And in the American League, 
got to go with Shohei Otani. I am in support of the idea that as long as he plays, he should be in the conversation, if not winning the MVP award every single season for his play on either side of the ball. All right, I go. I'll guess I'll go next here. Um, for the National League MVP, I'm going with Trey Turner here. Uh, I think he's just primed to have a, just one of those seasons where he can truly take over a team, um, and just have like ridiculous year stats. Especially if like the the amount of uh, uh, steals I think he can actually have this season, uh, based on the the uh, less amount of space he needs to cover because the base is increased. I think I just think he just has that year where it's hard to vote against him. And then for American League MVP, I'm also going to say Shohei Otani. Um, he truly is probably one of the best players in baseball right now on both sides of the field. Uh, so it's really hard to vote against him. I'll make it three for three in the AL. And to build off of what Joey said, should be the MVP every single year, unless you have someone like Aaron Judge who makes history. Otani for the MVP. And so due to finish fourth in MVP voting last year in the NL doubles hits, and runs as well as obp he was one hit short of 200 oh in a lineup that lost a key contributor in trey turner takes a step up if that's even possible at this point moving on to the cy young awards in the national league i have corbin burns who i i expect to have a solid season. I know opening day against the Cubs um, was not as characteristic of Corbin Burns as we've seen in the past, but he is out to show the Brewers that they effed up in the contract negotiations and the couple of hundred thousand dollars or whatever it was that they were negotiating over. Um, there's no way he stays in Milwaukee after this season. And I think he's going to make the best case for himself to move out of Milwaukee. And then jumping over to the American League, I'm going to go with Alec Manoa, who won the opening day starter role this year and is coming off a really solid season in 2022. So I'm excited to see what Manoa does in 2023 here. All right. I... I'm going to say for the National League, I'm going to go with Zach Gallen. Uh, I think he looked really good down the stretch um, in 2022. Uh, I think he can possibly just be one of those arms that like really does carry uh, the Diamondbacks to a possible wild card spot, like how they have in, uh, Jacob has in, in, in your, your bracket there. Uh, I do have the Diamondbacks personally being close to a wild card spot, but not quite there mainly because Zach Allen just is so dependable. In the AL, I'm going to have to go with uh, Christian Javier. The uh, the uh, um, Astros did lose Justin Verlander, but I think Christian Javier really just kind of takes where his spot where he was pitching and kind of just rolls with it. Uh, so I think he's primed for like that really that true breakout season uh, where he solidifies himself as like a true like bona fide ace of the league. NL Cy Young for me, Corbin Burns, just like Joey. Not going to comment on it because he touched it pretty well. The American League, I'm going to stick with Houston, but unlike Jack, I'm actually going to go with Framber Valdez. I believe he is their top starter, and especially with Verlander gone, he has all the spotlight. Javier is pretty solid as well. Fifth in Cy Young last year, 20th in MVP voting. He was an all-star, over 200 innings. I believe he led the league 
all of baseball in quality starts with 26. ERA, I think he's just going to take another step. He looked pretty good on opening day. But for Houston, it's going to seem like they didn't even skip a beat by losing JV. Moving on to our Rookie of the, rookie of the Years for both of the leagues here. Um, I'm going to keep things in the desert for the National League, and I'm going to say Corbin Carroll takes on the Rookie of the Year for the National League here. Uh, in the American League, a little bias here, but once I got the news that he made the roster, I'm saying Anthony Volpe takes Rookie of the Year for the American League. In the National League, I am going to go with Jordan Walker playing out of his normal position of third base because the Cardinals have annual gold glover Nolan Arenado. Um, I think Walker is still going to thrive in St. Louis this season. And in the AL, I have to go with Hunter Brown for my pick for Rookie of the Year. And I'll, I'll go Jordan Walker just like Joey in the AL. It will go Gunnar Henderson. Uh, I think his position versatility will always seem to play third and short lefty bat in a division where lefties are able to thrive. I just have high hopes for Gunner, and I think he's going to have a really solid season. NL Manager of the Year and AL Manager of the Year. Uh, my two surprise picks in the season bracket were the D-backs and Orioles. So naturally, Tori Lovello and Brandon Hyde are my picks. All right, it's actually really funny, Jacob. Uh, I do also have uh, Lavulo and uh, Brandon Hyde as my manager of the years. I, I think they're just two teams again on the brink of the roster being like a contender for like winning the division, but just not quite there. Uh, but it really takes like a manager to really elevate their teams. And I think both both of the both the teams there have that manager that is in the prime position to to really push them over the edge. So for the for the same reasons as you, I have I have both the same manager of the years. For my managers, I have Rob Thompson in the National League. Um, obviously, I picked the Phillies to win it all, and I have them getting the top seed in the playoffs. Uh, and then Scott Service in Seattle. Uh, I have Seattle in the two seed and making it to the CS. Um, so really looking to Seattle to take that next step that they haven't quite been able to in the last few years and really want to see the Phillies get back to the World Series, obviously. Comeback player of the year. This can range from guys with injuries, as we saw JV win, or guys coming off of really bad seasons and turning in really solid ones. So, again, Albert Pujols. My picks in the NL, Cody Bellinger. We just saw him hit his first homer as a Cub tonight. I think he could be a candidate to win a gold glove. He's going to be... Above average offensively. I think that's enough for him to win the award. In the AL, this dude's already won it once. Now he's going to switch to the AL and do it. Anthony Rendon. Uh, suspension aside, I hopefully this is the year where he puts everything together health-wise, and he's just able to help this massive Angels lineup. I also chose Anthony Rendon as my AL comeback player, hoping that he's healthy this year and can put together a solid string of a season for once in the last few years. And then for my NL comeback player, I have Ronald Acuna Jr., who missed pretty significant time last year and is going to be ready to hop back into that Braves lineup and play his heart out now that he's back and healthy and running around the field just fine. 
All right, for my NL Comeback Player of the Year, I'm going Jonathan India, um, Rookie of the Year. I uh, had some injuries last season, didn't really come back, wasn't huge, very, very strong here. But he's in, he's in a very, like, uh, in a situation where the Reds are going to be tanking, so it's an environment where he's not really had that much pressure to really perform. Uh, but I think it's just a, it's a good environment to come back and be able to just focus on him getting better. Uh, so I'm going India for, for NL Comeback Player of the Year. In the AL, I'm going Chris Sale, uh, which might not actually happen based on something we'll talk about probably in a few minutes here. Uh, but uh, Chris Sale has just been just annually injured with the Red Sox, and you got to kind of kind of hope for him that he can come back better uh, this year and kind of just be at least a a fraction of what of his uh, ceiling as a as a pitcher because he when he's on he is on. So those are our Jack. How about you keep us going to the NL and AL home run leaders? Yep, um, I'm going for repeats. So I have Schwarber and Judge for the NL and AL, respectively. Jacob, how about you? I have Riley, Austin Riley, and Jordan. I also have Jordan for the American League, and I'm going with Kyle Schwarber to repeat for the National League. How about strikeouts? Joey kicking us off again. Strikeouts? I'm going to jump back to someone that Jack mentioned earlier for NL Cy Young and Zach Gallen as the strikeout leader this year. Um, in the American League, I have Dylan Cease as my strikeout leader. I also have Zach Gallen and Dylan Cease. So I think that you just copied it of mine. I'm going Corbin Burns. Joe, do you have something to say? No, go ahead. I was getting those snippy comments in. Hey, go, no, what's, <laughs> what's your comment? I want to hear this. I said we'll never know. Yeah. <laughs> I honestly don't know who typed in the spreadsheet first. Okay. Um, I've got, for the NL, Corbin Burns. If he's going to win Cy Young, he's going to lead the league in case as well. In the AL, Garrett Cole. This is something he does pretty much annually at this point. For Team Gold Gloves, who do you guys have, and what is the reason for it? So I have the Cardinals for NL team gold glove, uh, mainly because you have Arenado, uh, Tyler O'Neill, Tommy Edmond, Goldschmidt, and a bunch of other guys that are pretty above league average uh, defenders. I think it's a pretty easy answer for the NL. AL, I have the Houston Astros. Um, again, I just think they have a very versatile like uh, roster of people that can play a lot of positions and play them well. Uh, Bregman, I think, is underappreciated in terms of his glove at third base. Um, Abreu, love to see how he, how he does. Uh, he's getting up there in age. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, Jeremy Pena, Altuve, Chad McCormick is a pretty good defender, so that's why I have the Astros. I also have the Astros for, for the American League. Um, you have the ALCS and World Series MVP, Jeremy Pena, in his sophomore season up the middle. You got Bregman, Altuve, Jack already mentioned a bunch of the names. This is a team that has been solid defensively for a few years now, and they're always going to be in contention for that Gold Glove Award while they have this team on the field. And then in the National League, I have to go with the Chicago Cubs. They added Dansby Swanson up the middle. Nico moved over to the other side of second base. He added Bellinger in center field. Ian Happ coming off a Gold Glove season in left field. Jan Gomes, Tucker Barnhart behind the plate. First base and third base are still a bit questionable. 
and right field, if Seiya Suzuki can come back and stay healthy, I think he is one of the more solid right fielders out there in terms of defensive abilities. Um, right now they're kind of flip-flopping who's playing right field to start the season. But the pitching staff, you also got Marcus Stroman out there being an all-around athlete when he's on the mound. So I think the Cubs have a solid chance at NL Gold Glove for team. We're clicking on the Astros too. You got Martin Maldonado behind the plate, one of the best pitch framers in the sport, and he just any one Gold Glove in 2017. We're gonna stick with Joey for the NL. It's gonna be the Cubs, like he said, the overhaul up the middle. Uh, you move on from Contreras, who might actually be a pretty good framer this year for the Cardinals, but you get a guy like Tucker Barnhart, who's gonna be really solid. Uh, so that's my reason for the Cubs. AL, some bias here, but I'm going to go with the Baltimore Orioles. Adley Rutschman, probably the best catcher we've seen since Buster Posey. You've got Cedric Mullins, who has already won a gold glove up in center. You have Jorge Mateo, first full season at shortstop. He flashed a glove last year. He played some of the outfield as well. Moen Urias, who is the gold glover for third base, he's a utility infielder now, so he doesn't even have a set position. When you've got that... You've also got Gunnar Henderson, who's a pretty solid defender. You have Connor Norby coming up at some point, Jordan Westberg. You have a lot of talent in Baltimore. Austin Hayes is another guy where I think it's finally going to put itself together, and you're really going to help this picture staff a lot. And we'll move on to over-unders. This is something Joey and I set every year. Um, this one, we, it took us a while to figure out some of them. We made some additions, some subtractions. But we do... Or over-unders for team and, and wins. A couple st stats here. Joey, kick us off with the first one. For the first prediction uh, for over-unders in terms of team record, uh, we set the Diamondbacks at 78 and a half wins. I have the over that the Diamondbacks are going to win at least 79 games this season. I'm taking the over. Over, considering I have them in the playoffs, yeah. Yeah, yeah, kind of have to. <laughs> yeah. uh, the Phil uh, Phillies, though, I have them as over, but interesting enough, I just don't have them in the playoffs. That's kind of a mess up on my part, but I do think they'll win at least ninety. Uh, I have Phillies below. I also have the Phillies over, considering I have them winning the World Series. So we got our two ALs, the Orioles and Astros. I've got the Orioles over at 83.5 wins. The Astros at under 99.5. I have, I, I have the Orioles over 84 and then Astros over. They're winning 100 games. I'm going to agree with you, Jacob. I have the Orioles over at at least 84 and the Astros under with no more than 99. Statistically, Jack, lead us off because our first one is a one. Yeah, so Aaron Judge home runs uh, sit at 49 and a half. Uh, I'm taking the under. I, I He hit 62, but I think he hits around like 45, 46 this year. That was the exact thought process that I had. I don't think he's going to get over 50, so I also have the under. Yep, I've got under two. Uh, we got Contreras hit by pitches at 19 and a half. I believe last year he had 22. A lot of those came against the Cardinals. Now he's obviously moving to the other side of the rivalry. So I'm going to say under because his previous high, I think, was 12. So I think last year was kind of a fluke for hit by pitches. I agree. I'm I also think last year was. Jack, go and repeat yourself. I'm also going to take the under. I'm going to make that three for three and say under. I think last year was definitely a fluke. I agree. 
and that he, there's no way he gets hit that much considering a solid chunk of his hit by pitches were actually from the Cardinals. Justin Verlander ERA 1.995. So will he get two or will he get 1.99 or below? I'm going to wait a second. Never mind. I'm gonna so I'm gonna say he gets over that. Uh, he's injured already to start the year, so and he's not the number one anymore. I think he's in a little bit more stacked division, even though the schedule is pretty even. But I think he's gonna go over a two ERA. I also think he's gonna go over um, a two. Again, historic season last year for him, but I just don't think he can replicate it again, especially at his age. Once again, three for three. I have the over. I don't think he goes sub two again this season. I agree with what you just said, Jack. I don't think he can replicate what he had last season in terms of ERA. Max Scherzer box, eight and a half. This is a interesting one as well. This is one of the additions Joey and I made because of the new box, um, how umpires are going to pay attention more to that. Esther Cortez would have been a good one, but Max Scherzer, eight and a half. Joey, I'll let you say the reasoning for that. Scherzer has been a pitcher in the last few years that has really liked the upbeat tempo of pitching. And I think he is one of the few pitchers in the league that might actually benefit from the pitch clock because he already has a faster tempo than most starters. And that being the case, uh, part of what Jacob and I had talked about was that he might get called for quick pitching because he's not going to give the batter enough time to set. It happened at least once or twice in spring training, I think. Um, it happened to a couple other pitchers as well. But I think Scherzer is going to mess around with the game clock a little bit. And he might even get called for um, some box in terms of pitching over to first base one too many times. Because that's a rule that people are going to have to get used to. That if you throw over too many times and you're not successful, the runner is going to get to advance. And so that that's also my reasoning for him being an over that he's going to have at least nine box on the season. I think there were like 40 pitch clock violations total in the opening weekend. Um, obviously, this is a new stat, so there's no previous records of this, but 40 in just about as many games is pretty high, I think. Yeah, I'm going to say over too. I'm going to say under. And, he, and he's. I don't know why. I just. I just have a feeling. Yeah, I think he's. He's. It could, it could really go either way because he's one of these guys who clearly doesn't give a crap. At the same time, he's somebody who's adapted over the last fifteen years. He's evolved into the pitcher he is. So maybe he gets it under control at some point. I really don't know. He has these sports. I think the pitching stats and the the pitch clock violations is going to be a fun stat to look at at the end of the season to see the trends as to how guys may have struggled at the beginning of the season, like now through, say, the end of May or maybe a little bit into June, but then also to see how they end the season. And I have a feeling that guys are going to adapt pretty quickly and it's just going to be a tough first few weeks. I mean, it's a new change, so it's going to take some time for people to get adjusted, but I definitely think it's going to be one where you see most of these Hitchcock violations at the cluster of the first two months of the season, but it trails off. 
Dansby Swanson games played 140, 154 and a half. I think he, he played 162 last year. I don't know if he did, but I think if if he if it if he didn't, it was close to one sixty two. He did indeed play one sixty two, followed by uh, that follows his one hundred sixty in twenty twenty one. Okay, well, the reason why Joey and I did Dansby was because he's moving into the lineup with David Ross is in control, and he tends to give a lot of his stars quite a bit of rest. So I'm going to say under one fifty four and a half, but he's been off to a really hot start. He's already made quite a few plays in the field where are pretty eye-opening. But I'm going to say under for now. I also have the under. Um, giving eight games to a player of Dansby's caliber is not unlike David Ross, especially if the Cubs are at a point this season where they're maybe towards the end of the season, if they're not quite in the playoff race and they want to get some of those guys at AAA some time. Dansby might get a couple days off to bring up some of the guys at AAA because the Cubs AAA Iowa roster is pretty competitive and they have a lot of guys that could step into this lineup and have a decent bit of success at the major league level. So I think it's going to end up relying on what type of season the Cubs end up having. I'm gonna go over. I think Swanson's gonna look at David Ross and he's like, "You're not, you're not playing today." He goes, "Oh, so DH then." Um, I think Swanson is kind of similar guy to like Benintendi, where I'm like, he's not playing unless he, he's injured. Um, if he's not, if he's not gonna play in the field, he will just slot in a DH. I think he wants to be out on the on the field in any way, or, way or shape or form for at least you know most of the games this season. So. Uh, even though Ross tends to sit some of these these star players, I just think he's Swanson's gonna find his ways to get in the lineup somehow. That could be tough though if Sayan comes back and Trey Mancini gets bumped out of the outfield because Trey's gonna be that DH every day then. Or yeah, but even them, it's like if if Swanson can still play like 150 games or like one 145 or 150 at shortstop. You need you need you know you know five to ten games where he's playing DH where Mancini you know happens to sit too. I think it'll be it'll be tough for Ross because obviously Dansby is Gold Glover. Uh, I would lean towards playing him every single day, but it's the same time you have a Gold Glove caliber player in Nico Horner who, who gets slot in. Nick Magical isn't an everyday third baseman, so you're probably gonna want to move him back at some point. And to build off of what Joey said, you also have Nelson Velasquez tearing the cover off the ball to start the season in Iowa. Christopher Morrell needs to rejoin at some point. Matt Mervis as well. And they have three catchers on the roster, so I think a little bit of flexibility there. But I, I understand why Jack said it, because I would lean towards playing him every single day if I could. Fromber Valdez. Oh, Joey, I mean, go ahead. On the Cubs 40-man, they also have Kevin Alcantara, Alexander Canario, Brendan Davis, Chris Morrell, as well as Nelson Velasquez, as you mentioned. These are all guys that could see time at some point this season. They're all outfielders, but that's going to bump Saya or Trey out of that right field spot. Um, and Ian Happ is very easy to slot in at a DH if he's not playing left or center field on a given day. I guess it, it also, I mean, David Kaplan did say that he believes PCA will be up at some point. I guess it really depends on where they're at at the deadline because Happ and Bellinger, if Bellinger rebounds, those are two guys you could flip 
and you could bring up Velasquez, Morrell, Davis, a lot of these guys to play him. Yeah, Bellinger just needs to stop striking out. Yeah. That's a completely different conversation, though. So moving on to our next prediction, we have Framber Valdez quality start set at 21 and a half. I'm taking the over just because of how last season went. I think he had more than 26 or right around 26 quality starts on the season last year. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm taking the over on this one. Over. I'm taking the over as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it just it's from Valdez. Like, he's a quality start machine. Our last over-under, we have Corbin Burns and Brandon Woodruff combining for at least 432.5 strikeouts. I'm going to say the over. I also have the over. Um, obviously, I have Burns winning the Cy Young. And I think he is just going to be on one this season to show the Brewers how much they messed up. And Brent Woodruff is always up there in terms of strikeouts. Um, the last couple seasons, I think he's been in the top five every year. I'm going the under. Um, I'm not trying to jinx anyone, but I just feel like injuries are going to come to play in this one where they'll get close, but they won't They won't go over. Yeah, Woodruff has had those issues the last couple of years. I'm going to honestly say they might push 450. Maybe even 460 combined. All right. Um, that at least goes that covers everything in our spreadsheet here. Uh, I do have one more thing for us to predict here. I think this is will be a little more fun for us. Uh, one trade prediction. Which I do want to quickly plug that throughout the season, up until the deadline, will be updating and posting a top 30 trade targets. The first one was already out. Uh, but interestingly enough, Jack's pick is not on my list just yet. Yeah, so, I mean, you're obviously, uh, you obviously allude to it, but uh, my pick here is Chris Sale to the San Diego Padres. Um, I had him as my AL comeback of the year, and the reason why I said that he may not be uh, eligible for this is because he might get shipped at the deadline. Uh, one reason is I don't think the Red Sox have the roster to really look like they're going to be contending, and I don't really see Chris Sale being a part of a core of a team that they're going to want to build in Boston. Uh, Chris Sale has been injured, like it seems like, every single season for like the last three or four seasons here, uh, and I think he's just a candidate to really to a guy that just really needs like a change of scenery. And maybe that helps with, with him staying healthy, get some new trainers, uh, have that new environment, maybe playing, you know, maybe just playing that new that new place will make things a little bit better for him. Uh, but I think the San Diego Padres is the team that probably matches with the, the Red Sox here. Uh, and then more importantly for Chris Sale. So the San Diego Padres are going to be looking for starting pitching help because they're going up an experiment here with Nick Martinez and Seth Lugo in the rotation. And I just don't think that really works. Uh, I don't think I think you get lucky if one of them pans out to be a dependable arm out of the rotation, uh, but I don't think it's going to be enough uh, for them to depend on both of them in the back end. So they're going to be looking for some starting pitching help towards the deadline here. My pick, I, I don't have specific players or a team they'll be going to, but I think the A's will make a blockbuster this summer. We've already seen the move of a ton of stars within the last calendar year. Olsen, Chapman, Bassett, Manaya, even Sean Murphy this past winter. Frankie Montas last deadline. 
I didn't go do that again. I do have Paul Blackburn. He was the highest A I had on my top 30 list. If he can come back healthy and he can show what he did the first half last season when he was an all-star, easily he's a top five trade ship. I think you package that with maybe Tony Kemp, who's an impending free agent, but you also have Alemis Diaz and Jace Peterson. You signed to fairly cheap two-year deals with the ability to flip them. So if you package Blackburn with one of those utility players, and then you, on top of those two guys, you put one of your four controllable relievers, whether it's Zach Jackson, Mingo Acevedo, Sam Mole, or Danny Jimenez, you're going to get a lot of teams calling. And I think the, the big five I have right now, the Blue Jays, Dodgers, Braves, Phillies, and Astros, are teams to watch if the A's decide to make a big package available. And my trade prediction is someone that Jacob has on his list. Um, and it's not a person who's been connected to this team quite yet, but the the need is there. And that's Jamer Candelario going from the Nats to the Chicago Cubs, uh, finding himself back in Chicago for the first time since 2017. Uh, when he got shipped off to Detroit. Um, the Cubs really need to figure out third base. That's one of the big question marks, really, I think one of the only question marks they have right now uh, with the Major League roster is that third base position. Um, they have a couple guys who can fill that role, Nick Madrigal, Patrick Wisdom, Chris Morrell, if he can start batting some more than he was able to in spring training. But the Cubs don't have a long-term solution at third base right now. Jamer has many years ahead of him. He's only 29 years of age, and he honestly hasn't been on the field as much except for the last few seasons. Uh, he led the league in doubles, led the MLB in doubles uh, in 2021 with 42, played 149 games that year. He played 124 last year. 144 in 2018 in his full, first full season with Detroit. Uh, now he finds himself with a struggling national team uh, where he's not probably a long-term solution, and it's a, he's probably a player that the Nats can get something in return for. And um, The Cubs have guys that they can trade. They have capital in terms of some money now as well. Um, so I, I can see him filling that hole at third base for the Cubs sometime this season. And that's a wrap on episode 42 of the 643 Triple J podcast. Join us next week where we'll chat about our fantasy baseball league. For coverage beyond the pod, give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram at 643JJ or check out our website at 643JJ.wordpress.com. 